The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know what strikes me is that uh, Google as a company has an almost godlike vantage point over our world uh, in the sense that they see what is in our hearts and minds uh, at any given moment based on the things that we're searching for on the internet. And every year they look through all the things that have been searched on their search engine and put together a video that highlights the most searched topics that year. And what they discovered in 2020 uh, is that we were filled with why questions. Why is it called COVID-19? Why can't I sleep at night? Why is toilet paper sold out everywhere? Why is Australia burning? Why are people protesting in the streets? These questions reveal the confusion and disorientation that so many of us have experienced in 2020, living in a world that we just couldn't make sense of. Nothing has been predictable or normal about this year that we've just gone through. In the spring, I preached a series on the lessons that we ought to be learning from the pandemic. And during that time, as I was talking with some of you, I I sensed that uh, a lot of us were challenged by how this disruption uh, from uh, all of the normal routines that we are so used to should impact the way that we approach life going forward. And what what has this pandemic exposed about my family life, my career, all the sources of well-being and security that I look to? But you know, the truth is, after almost a year of this, quote, new normal under this pandemic, I suspect that many of us have frankly stopped asking these kind of questions. And we're just pretty impatient counting the days until we can basically get life back to life as we knew it before the pandemic. And with the vaccine distribution now underway, uh, I think we can all see light at the end of this really long and dark tunnel. But if we, if all we can say at the end of this pandemic, and not just the pandemic, but everything else that has happened in 2020 is, I survived, I think an opportunity will really have been lost. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The Bible tells us that everything we go through, whether good or bad, uh, has a purpose. That God is always at work through those things in our life. And if we really believe this, then what is it that God is accomplishing in your life this year? You know, in the summer of 1998, right after finishing my medical school residency training... Uh, my, I'm sorry, my medical residency training, I had this opportunity to lead a team of college students on a mission trip to Ethiopia and Africa. 
And of all of the short-term mission trips that I had gone on, uh, this was by far the most difficult and challenging one that I had ever experienced for, for, frankly, a lot of reasons. And the rest of the team had already arrived on the field for some time uh, because I was still wrapping up my work in the hospital. And so I had to travel alone to get to the mission base to join the team. And I don't have time to go into all the details, but there were all these crazy circumstances that extended my travel from the U.S. to Ethiopia. And that in and of itself, I could write a book on. And if we're ever talking together one-on-one, feel free to ask me to share that story because it's a crazy one. Um, But by the time that I was about to join up with the team, because of all of these disruptions, it had already been about four days since the last time I was able to bathe which was in the U.S. before leaving for Africa. And so this missionary that was driving me around in Addis Ababa, the capital there, uh, asked me if I wanted to take a shower at his house before we joined the team. And I jumped at that opportunity because I knew that uh, we were going to do ministry in this northern um, part of Ethiopia that was very rural and, and we would be there for weeks without the opportunity to take baths or showers, really. And I can't tell you how good it felt to uh, take that hot shower in this modern bathroom. Uh, but after that shower was done, uh, I realized that I had a bit of a dilemma. Uh, you see, it, I wasn't expecting this opportunity to be able to take a shower. And so I had no new clothes to change into. And my luggage had already been sent ahead of me to the mission base. And so I had no clothing at all with me beyond what was on my back. And it was bad enough to have to put that, those dirty, uh, sh- dirty shirt and the dirty pants uh, back on after that shower. But it was almost unbearable to have to put those already worn underwear as well as those smelly socks uh, back on after that clean shower. I mean, those socks, after four days of wearing them, just they smelled like Doritos. It was just disgusting. And so it was just incredibly painful to have to wear those things after I had just gotten clean. Well, you know, this is the dynamic that the Apostle Paul describes to the Ephesian church when he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What Paul is acknowledging here is that even after we are saved, the remnants of our former life that we knew before we met Jesus can cast a really long shadow over us well into our Christian lives. You know, attitudes like worry or greed or lust or an unforgiving spirit, these are all things that we can nurse in our hearts. Uh, And what Paul is saying is these things are incompatible with our new life in Christ. It's like wearing dirty, smelly underwear and socks after taking a shower. 
And so he uses this imagery of taking off the clothes of our old life and putting on the new clothes to describe the continuing work of renewing our mind and the condition of our heart so that those things will match our new identity in Christ. And that's really what I want us to think about as we close out this 2020 year. From the pandemic to this Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that ensued, to the presidential election that we've just gone through and all the drama that follow, that's been following it. What have the events of this year exposed, possibly about the old clothes of your life before faith that maybe you are still wearing to this day as a Christian? In other words, what I'm asking is, are you growing and learning from all of these experiences that you've gone through this year? Or are they just causing you to become only a more extreme version of yourself by the way that you're simply just reacting to them rather than actually growing from them? What about the fact that you probably have sp- are spending more time with your family than at any other season of your life because of all of the lockdowns and COVID restrictions? Have you grown stronger as a family because of all the extra time that you have been given together? Or, frankly, have things gotten worse because of it? Or the fact that many of the things that give you so much joy in life, like watching professional sports or gathering with friends or going on vacations and doing other trips and outings, have all but been taken away from us? Has the absence of those things led you into a deeper, more meaningful life? Or, frankly, are you just more miserable, more depressed? Or, frankly, maybe you've just replaced one set of distractions that you've lost with a new set of distractions. What are the areas of your life where you have basically stubbornly dug in your heels and just really aren't learning or growing anymore? That's really what I want to challenge you with as we close out this year. You know, at the end of each year, I always pray that God would give me a message that he wants me to share with you that will cast a vision for the upcoming year. And as I was praying that prayer this year, it's interesting, but God kept bringing me back to what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so what I want to say to you on this New Year's service is this. I believe that in this coming year, God wants to use the Lord's Prayer as an essential tool for our spiritual growth. In other words, through the Lord's Prayer, I believe God wants to help us to put off the clothes of our old life and put on the clothes of our new life in Christ and that this prayer could be a vital tool that God can use to achieve that work in us. The Lord's Prayer is recorded twice in the Bible, once in the Gospel of Matthew and the other in the Gospel of Luke. And for today's message, I want to focus on the prayer as it's recorded in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, it says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I want to be a little bit more specific right now about what I'm talking about as a challenge and an invitation for 2021. In 2021, I want to invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis. You know, it's likely that Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples on quite a few different occasions. And I suspect that for many of you, uh, being asked to recite the Lord's Prayer every day doesn't really get you very excited. If this is the vision and the challenge for 2021, maybe it's a bit of an anticlimactic moment for you. And I'm guessing it's because you have serious doubts about whether doing something like this could actually lead to any kind of significant spiritual growth. In fact, you may be worried that it will have the exact opposite effect of making these words of the prayer feel even emptier and more meaningless with each day that you recite them. And I think that's because most of us have been led to believe that the only meaningful, authentic prayers that really get God's attention are the ones that sort of spring spontaneously from the depths of our heart when we just sort of speak impromptu about whatever it is that burdens us. Now, those kind of prayers are important. But there is also a rich and deep prayer life that we can develop by praying the prayers found in the Bible, as well as those that have been written by other believers throughout church history. And I think uh, there is a sense of fear that we have that those kind of prayers really can't be very effective or be very meaningful for us. But I want to kind of prove you wrong today. Luke's gospel records the conversation between Jesus and his disciples that prompted him to teach them this prayer. In Luke 11, verse 1 to 2, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, and then he launches into the Lord's prayer. Now, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight argues that based on the specific grammar that is found in these verses, as you look at the Greek text, the original Greek text, he, he says that uh, what Jesus intended is that his disciples actually pray this prayer, not just using it as a model prayer where we launch into our own prayers, but to essentially recite this prayer. And this argument is supported by the fact that so many church traditions throughout the centuries have taken Jesus' words literally and have prayed this Lord's Prayer as a regular part of their worship, both corporately and individually. In his book, The Blue Parakeet, McKnight writes, Here is a fact from church history. To the best of our knowledge, the followers of Jesus have always recited the Lord's Prayer whenever they have gathered for worship and prayer. The evidence for this is universal. Every major denomination in the world prior to the 19th and 20th centuries recited the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. Why? Because Luke 11 too, taught them to do this. But most evangelical churches I have worshipped in and preached in do not recite the Lord's Prayer whenever they pray together. Why? Because there is an unwritten contrary to what Jesus taught principle at work among us, that reciting set prayers leads to vain repetitions. 
We have chosen for pastoral reasons not to do what Jesus commanded us to do and have chosen instead to apply these words in another way. How? We take them as a general principle instead of a specific command. And this permits us to gather together in prayer without reciting the Lord's Prayer. This decision permits us to see the Lord's Prayer as a, quote, model prayer instead of recited prayer. And then he ends uh, parenthetically, for what it's worth, I think the Lord's Prayer is both a model and the precise words we should use whenever we gather in prayer. I recite it several times a day. And so as McKnight is pointing out, in our day, we have such a strong bias against any kind of recited prayer. And as a result, uh, we have essentially rejected uh, centuries of church tradition and history. As well as what he argues is the plain command of Jesus to his followers that they should say the Lord's Prayer regularly. Now, let me say this. Of course, it is possible to turn a daily recitation of the Lord's Prayer into nothing more than dead and meaningless ritual. That's possible. But I believe if we do it with the right heart and with the right intention, that praying this prayer can actually help us align our heart more with God's own heart. The prayer can guide us in that direction. You know, if really honest with ourselves, I think for many of us, our prayer life basically consists of saying grace before meals and then asking God in random moments to help us in times of need. Whether it's something small like a parking space to open up when the lot is completely filled or for something much heavier and more difficult like when there's a cancer diagnosis for a loved one in our family. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with prayers like that. But if that is the extent of our prayer life, then I don't think we have truly grasped the full picture of prayer that we find in Scripture. The Lord's Prayer teaches us how God wants us to pray to Him. The things that He wants to hear from us when we talk with Him. I mean, if you really look through much of the Bible, there's rarely a moment like this when God just sort of holds us by the hand this explicitly and directly. And so he basically is saying to us, when you pray, this is how to do it. And these are the words you ought to use. And these are the, th the, the thoughts, the sentiments I want you to communicate. This is what a good prayer is. Now, I think ideally what we ought to do is to memorize the prayer. It's not very long, and I don't think it would take much effort to memorize it. Just memorize it in whatever your favorite translation is that you use most of the time. And after you memorize it, just begin each day, each morning, by praying this prayer. And as you pray this Lord's Prayer, I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to direct you to particular parts of that prayer that may lead you into further prayer based on those convictions. That in any given time, as the year progresses, there's going to be certain aspects of this Lord's Prayer that is really going to speak to you and the things that you are going through and the things that are on your heart and the things that are on God's heart for you. 
Now, for today's message, I'm not going to spend too much time unpacking the meaning of each phrase in this, pray, in this prayer, and it's really because of two reasons. First, it's because after Easter, we're going to wrap up the uh, Bible project series that we're in right now, and I'm going to preach after that a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so during that series, we'll be covering the Lord's Prayer. And then secondly, and more importantly, I believe that God will open your eyes to a deeper understanding of the different parts of this prayer as you commit yourself regularly to praying it. And so rather than me trying to tell you up front, these are the things that you ought to be getting out of the prayer, I would rather have you begin that journey by you simply praying the prayer and just opening yourself up to the leading of the Spirit in the way that uh, these truths will be made very personal to you and come alive to you. For now, let me just share a few thoughts on the very opening words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And frankly, I don't even want to unpack that entire phrase, but just the very first two words of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, our Father. As many of you may already know, uh, to the Jews, it would, be, it would have been unthinkable to refer to God in such an informal and personal way. They had such a high regard for the name of God that outside of reading Scripture, Jews basically really never um, even utter the name of God, his formal name. Instead, whenever they refer to his name in more casual conversation, they call God Hashem, which in Hebrew literally means the name. And basically, they put that substitution because they don't even want to risk the possibility of taking the name, the name of the Lord in vain. There are a couple of instances in the Old Testament where God is referred to as the Israelites' father. But they were never taught to use that title when praying to him, and so they don't. In fact, when the Jews heard Jesus refer to God as his father, they were so scandalized by it that they actually wanted to kill him because of it. It's found in John's gospel, in John 5, verse 18. Right before Jesus taught his disciples how to pray through the Lord's Prayer, he taught them, interestingly, how not to pray. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 to 8, it says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus warns his followers that prayer can become like theater, like a performance. We become so worried about saying the right words or looking the right way and religious in front of the eyes of others because that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. 
They love to stand in their long robes in the synagogues and pray these very eloquent prayers. And in essence, God was saying, who is their audience? Who are they even really speaking to? Because whenever we pray publicly, that is always a temptation. That is always a risk. Is that we forget who our audience is and we become so preoccupied and so so self-conscious with what others are thinking about our prayer. Because there's just something inherent about prayer that seems to draw that kind of insecurity and that kind of fear in us. That it's such formalized religious speech. And we want to be sure that we get it right and we sound good and we're saying the right things. But Jesus not only says that, but he says, whether you're praying publicly or even in private, you can end up praying as manipulation. As if by simply putting in the time and using enough words, we can bend God's will to our own will and make him give us and do for us the things we want. And what Jesus is saying is that is a distortion of what prayer was intended to be. That is not prayer. And so instead, he invites us to come to God as our Heavenly Father who knows everything before we need it or before we even ask. In other words, what Jesus is teaching his disciples is when you pray, let God be your exclusive audience. Let your complete focus be on God and God alone. And by calling him Father, Jesus is asking us to see prayer as a door into the most intimate relationship imaginable with our God. Now, let me just share at a little bit more of a personal level here about all this. It's interesting to me to see how my understanding of this term father has changed over the course of my life. You know, when I was younger, um, I saw my father as this larger-than-life figure in my life. Um, As a surgeon, as a doctor, I knew that he was this amazing guy who basically cut open human bodies in order to save lives. And at home, he was someone who seemed to know the answer to every question that I could ever ask. And not only that, but he was the breadwinner. He provided for our family so that we had everything that we needed. It all came from my father. But in these more recent years, my relationship with my father has completely flipped And I now find myself, in many ways, taking care of him. Just about every week, I'm at his house, helping him with something. Whether it's troubleshooting a problem with his iPhone, or helping him with his online bank account, or just simply hanging up a picture on a wall that he wants up there, or moving some heavy things that he's now too weak to lift. And what I've realized is that in this season of my life, I have become an authority figure, a father figure. I have become the father in most spheres of my life, someone that others are now looking to for help or direction or wisdom, whether it's at work, home, wherever it might be. And the truth is, I feel the weight of that responsibility all the time. And sometimes that weight can feel crushing. And I think many of you can relate to this feeling because you carry that same responsibility and burden in your life. 
You know, the older we get, the more that others seem to rely on us and the fewer people that we know that we can rely on in our lives. But I think that's precisely why Jesus invites us to pray a prayer like this, saying, God, my Father. Because it is a reminder whenever we call God Father that even we need someone that we can lean on, someone that we can turn to for help in our moment of need. And that is the frame of mind that the Lord's Prayer is inviting us to in the very opening words of the prayer. The New Testament writers go even further than calling God simply Father to calling him Abba Father, which is a term that Jesus used when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba Father. In his commentary on Galatians, Tim Keller writes, Why would Paul use an Aramaic idiomatic phrase in a letter to Greek-speaking Galatians who probably didn't know Aramaic, the common language of Palestine? Because Jesus Christ used it in talking to his father, Mark 14, 36. It was a daringly familiar term to use to address the Lord Almighty. So when Paul says that we should use it, he is vividly asserting that we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus himself. We can approach God as if we were as beautiful, heroic, and faithful as Jesus himself. All that is his is ours. This is why the writer of Hebrews can tell us that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. It seems inappropriate, almost insulting to call God something so informal or casual as Abba. But this is the amazing access that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. Abba is the language of toddlers, of little children. In English, we would say daddy. Uh, in Korean, uh, we would say appa. Using this title for God invites us to approach him with the same confidence and assurance of love and acceptance that a little child has when approaching his or her father. And that is what Jesus is inviting us to when he asks us to call God father or daddy. You know, I didn't grow up calling my father daddy. Uh, so the truth is that term of endearment doesn't actually hold a lot of emotional connection for me. Um, because frankly, in those younger years of my life, I grew up in Korea. And even when I was in Korea, uh, much of my early childhood, my father was gone because uh, he was in the army and he was actually deployed to fight in the Vietnam War. And so, daddy doesn't actually stir up uh, much emotion for me. But lately in my prayers, I've been referring to God as simply dad, uh, which is what I've always called my father, uh, my earthly father. 
And that little act, uh, that little decision, has had quite a profound impact on the way that I think about God when I've been praying these days. By starting out my prayer with the title, Dad, it has immediately opened up my heart to talking with God in such a more honest and vulnerable way. Calling him dad has just really radically transformed my entire attitude with which I enter into prayer with him. I feel that there is nothing that I can't share with him. Nothing that I need to withhold from him. When I call him dad, I sense his deep interest in me, that I'm not bothering him with my prayers, but that he deeply cares about the things that I want to share with him. And I think that is precisely what Jesus wanted to happen when we pray. When we use these, this formal language of heaven, you know, like, uh, like the, the Lord of hosts or God Almighty or these kind of titles for God, I think it immediately puts us in this kind of more of this posture of formalized religious speech. But I want to challenge you in your own prayer life. Whatever it is, that term that you use to refer to your own father, apply that to God. Call him dad or whatever it might be. And I think that is one of the first steps into a more intimate, deeply connected uh, relationship with God through prayer. I just want you to think as I close this message to the depths of the understanding about God that we gain from just the opening two words of this prayer, our Father. I want to argue that there's such a, a, a deep, a rich a meaning and understanding of God that we can gain through the Lord's Prayer. And I want, therefore, to invite you in this coming year to commit yourself to praying this Lord's Prayer every morning when you wake up and start your day. Because I sincerely believe that as you pray this prayer and meditate on these words that you are saying, that it's going to have an incredible impact on your spiritual growth in this coming year. And, you know, one last thing I will say as I close this message is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's really unfortunate that the sermon is pretty much just a one-way communication of me speaking to you. It's not really a conversation where I get to hear back from you. But what I would love to hear from you about is how you are experiencing the impact of this Lord's Prayer. And so as we go into it together as a church, um, would you just shoot me a text or send me an email and just let me know how God is speaking to you and the work that he is doing in your life through the Lord's Prayer. But that is my sincere hope for this coming year, is that together we would all as a church be beginning each new day with this prayer and inviting God to work in us through that prayer, even as much as through that prayer we are asking God to work in our lives and in our world. As we close out our service today, uh, we are going to come to the Lord's table and we want to celebrate what Christ has done for us by taking the elements of this table. When we think about the Lord's Prayer and this invitation to call Him Father, it speaks to the heart of God, of His incredible desire to draw us near to Him 
and to have such an intimate and loving relationship with him. And that was expressed in no greater a way than when he gave us his only son to become one of us and to die for our sins on the cross. And that's what we celebrate when we come to this table and take of the bread and take of the cup. And so as we have just been looking at through the Lord's Prayer, and as we think about as we come to the table, I want us to just reflect on that love of God for us, of how deeply he wants to enter into relationship with us. And he did so by giving us his only son to die on the cross. And so let me invite you at this time to go ahead and take first from the bread and then next from the cup. And then I will pray for us as we close out our worship uh, in a time of singing in response to this message.